Okay. Today, my guest is Professor Mansur Javidan. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Mansur as a person. Uh, Professor Javidan is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally is a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick, snap, uh, quick uh, snapshot. Professor Javidan is a fellow of the Pan-Pacific Pan Business Association and the past president and chairman of the board of directors in the GLOBE project. He's also a co-editor of the 2004 GLOBE book, which won the Scott Myers Award for Applied Research in the Workplace at SIAP. He also co-authored the 2014 GLOBE book, which received University of San Diego and International Leadership Association Leadership Book Award for scholarly rigor and critical thought. He received the Decade Best Paper Award in 2016 by the Academy of Management Perspectives. He was recognized as among the top 100 most influential authors in organization behavior in the world. He is also recognized as among the top two most cited scientists in the field of management. He has consulted with the World Bank, NASA, the US Army, among many MNEs. He also took a four-year sabbatical to work with the CEO of TransCanada Pipelines, one of the largest energy services companies in the world. Thank you, Mansur, for joining us. Thank you, uh, Elgaz. It's such a pleasure uh, spending this time with you. Uh, how, how, how did you, or what did you uh, want to become when you were a child? I wanted to be an engineer. I was so excited and passionate about uh, building things. Um, I remember uh, I have an older brother and um, his passion was uh, dissecting uh, little uh, animals and bugs because he wanted to be a doctor, a medical doctor. And I hated all of that. And, and I, I, my passion was just becoming an engineer and building roads or stuff. Uh, that was my passion. Where did you grow up? Well, uh, I actually did my undergraduate degree in, in industrial engineering. Uh, and, you know, as I started uh, working, something really interesting happened to me. Um, I realized I actually prefer to work with people rather than machines. Uh, and industrial engineering at the time was heavily into time management and uh, scheduling, uh, plant layout. Uh, it, it was very uh, mathematical uh, and didn't have a lot of human element to it. Uh, and, and it bothered me that I was impacting a lot of human beings without actually paying much attention to them <laughs> in the design of everything that I was doing. Uh, and at the time, um, MBA programs, uh, I did my in industrial engineering in Iran, uh, in Tehran. And um, at the time in mid seventies, there was a lot of interest in this new thing called MBA programs. And mm -hmm. um, I started uh, learning about what is this? Um, and the more I learned about it, the more excited I became uh, about this idea of getting a master's degree in, in a field that would put me in touch with human beings and, and dealing with people. So, um, I moved to the U.S. and started my MBA study at the University of Minnesota, the Carlson School. Um, and, and after I finished, 
my MBA, I just, I had thirst. I was still hungry for more. So uh, the next step for me was the PhD program. So I just continued into the PhD program and uh, did my PhD degree in strategic management because I was fascinated by decisions that top executives make uh, in organizations. And, um, and for my dissertation, I, was, uh, uh, I did a lot of interviews with uh, chief marketing officers, CEOs and CFOs, uh, trying to get into their mind, uh, uh, understanding how they make decisions, why they make the kinds of strategic decisions that they make, um, why do they sometimes succeed and sometimes fail? That was really a, a big question in my mind. Uh, if somebody is so successful for a period of time, what happens? Uh, and then uh, what causes them to get into trouble? Uh, so uh, that's the evolution of my passion from engineering to working um, with human beings. That's interesting. Who was your advisor in the PhD program? Um, my uh, advisor in the PhD program was uh, Professor Willis, uh, who had his PhD at MIT in economics. Uh, he was a, as straightforward uh, and traditional an economist as you can find. However, he was in a business school and he has this, he had this passion of trying to make sense of economics in management, uh, in business organizations. Uh, so trying to bring the macro uh, economic phenomena into the world of uh, micro organizational phenomena. Nice. Uh, and he agreed to be my dissertation advisor because of my focus on um, uh, senior executives in uh, corporations. Interesting. Uh, something that is not on your CV that people might find interesting about you. Uh, you know, that's a really interesting question. Uh, so <laughs> the most interesting thing or unusual thing about me that's not on the CV is um, who I am. Uh, I was born in Tehran, in, in Iran. My father was Iranian. My mother was Russian. And my family is a very unusual family. There is an Italian side to my family. There is a Russian side to my family. There is a Turkish side to my family. And there is a French side, Swiss side to my family. So uh, growing up in the middle of all this diversity, uh, it was not always fun because uh, sometimes it was confusing. Why, why do people do things differently? Um, but what was quite interesting to me was the fact that um, two members of my family could be sitting at a table and not being able to communicate with each other because they were speaking different languages. Um, <laughs> and, 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 you know, that's not always bad because multiple religions are practiced in my family. So um, th this, th this world of... Um, diversity that I was brought into uh, and I grew up uh, has shaped the kind of mind that I have and the kind of passion and the kind of um, individual that I am. So when, when I talk about cross-cultural issues, it's, it is not a, an abstract 
a conceptual issue. It's my life. Um, I know exactly what that means. I know why, why and how hard it is um, for someone who's from a unicultural background to suddenly be exposed to, um, uh, to someone else who uh, does things very, very um, differently. Let me give you such a simple, basic example, Lugas. And I think you yourself may, may actually resonate with this. Um, when I was uh, very young, I noticed that the, uh, the Italian side of my family uh, would always drink coffee for breakfast. And the Turkish and the Iranian side of my family would always drink tea for breakfast. And I was wondering, why is that? What's going on here? Why is it that people drink different things at breakfast? And I was like 11 years old at the time. Um, so it's that curiosity, that constant set of questions that came to my mind because I was living this particular life of uh, people who were from very different backgrounds very different parts of the world. Interesting. That is not on my CV. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. If you stopped what you're doing today, uh, and if you could actually do everything all over again, what's the second best uh, alternative career path for you? You know, I am a teacher. Um, when I was doing my undergraduate uh, program in engineering, I was hired by the then Iranian Air Force to teach English to Iranian uh, pilots and cadets of the pilot school. Because at the time, the relationship between the US and Iran was excellent. So a lot of all the training, the technical training for Iranian pilots were done in the US. So I was hired when I was 19 years old uh, to teach people who were much older than I was um, uh, English. And I loved it. it. It was a little scary, to be honest with you, because they were all, most, most of the time, they were quite a bit older. Uh, some of them were very senior officers. Um, but I, I, it was, I, I, it, I noticed that I enjoy, I, I get energized when I was in the classroom. And then I moved on in the MBA program. I was a teaching assistant. I was teaching in the PhD program. I taught various courses. So if I stop what I do now, one way or the other, I'm going to find opportunities to teach uh, because that is something in me that just pulls me in that direction. But there is another thing that uh, I would uh, be very passionate about. Um, I would be working in a global organization traveling from one side of the world to the other side of the world and, and trying to understand uh, people and, and how and why they live their lives the way they do. Um, so um, if you put these two together, what it means is uh, I'm going to be a teacher moving all over the world and working with whoever is interested in what I have to teach. Uh, any regrets? Uh, is there anything that you wish you would have done uh, or done differently? Um, 
I wouldn't call it a regret. I've lived and worked in my, uh, over the period of uh, the, uh, the previous three decades, I have lived and worked in over 30 countries. And I have enjoyed every minute of it. Uh, I wish I could do 60 countries. I mean, the, this thirst in me about learning firsthand how and why people behave they, the way they do. It, it's just uh, something that is the, the greatest passion I have ever had. Uh, Mansur, can, can we switch to research and talk mm-hmm. about uh, specifically about the GLOW project? Uh, what it is, uh, how it was conceived, how it grew uh, to such an immense uh, size and um, the, the amount of data collected. Can we just talk about the GLOW project in general? Sure, absolutely. I'm happy to do that. Um, well, guys, in 1990, um, I was invited uh, by my dear friend, my late friend, Ali Dasmalchian, who at the time was the director of the MBA program at the University of Victoria. Uh, I was invited to teach an MBA course uh, to their students in strategy. At the same time, uh, Professor Bob House <clears throat> was also invited to teach a course, a PhD seminar in uh, leadership. So Bob and I were uh, living in Victoria for about a month and we had a lot of things in common. Two of them was we loved red wine, we loved uh, and and good food and we loved Cuban cigars. Um, So whenever we had free time, we would, Bob and I would spend a lot of time chatting about interesting research questions. And of course, Bob House was, uh, was a renowned world authority on charismatic leadership. So in our conversations, uh, the question that we kept hitting on was, okay, Bob, you've done all this work. Uh, there's a lot of research in the US about leadership, what it means to be an effective leader, etc." Does any of that apply outside of the US or outside of Western Europe? Um, and um, our quick answer was no, we don't know. Uh, we really don't know because there's not a lot of uh, scientific research on um, what does leadership mean in different parts of the world. Um, so um, Bob started thinking okay, let's start a project that we will study the connection between national culture and what is leadership in different parts of the world. So we went back and forth, back and forth. Neither one of us were experts in cultures. I I, I wanna be very clear about this. It was our curiosity, it was not our expertise. Um, So we started reading what was at the time available and chatting about it as we, as we were spending time together. And of course, Hofstede today is the seminal work in the field uh, with his cultural dimensions. Um, so we looked at his uh, Hofstede's today's uh, scales and questions. And at the end of the day, we decided, uh, let's, let's go beyond that. Let's learn from 
what half today has provided to us and let's build on it. So um, we decided to actually create new cultural dimensions and scales uh, for those. And, at, and by that time, of course, Bob was in touch uh, with other professors in different countries. We were thinking massively at the time, let's go and collect data in 20 countries. Well, as it turned out in the first 12 months after those conversations, um, because of Bob's connections and reputation, we already had over 50 countries, uh, uh, researchers in over 50 countries who were uh, excited to join this project. And Bob came up with this uh, acronym GLOBE, which stands for Global Leadership and Organizational Behavior Effectiveness. So between 92 and 97, we scientifically designed the scales, created the scales, uh, and completed the data collection in 62 countries. Uh, and as you mentioned earlier, Ilgaz, we, we've published a whole bunch of things. And then in, 20, in 2004, uh, we decided, and this is again, was Bob's leadership, uh, he wanted to look at the actual behavior because in the original phase of GLOBE, our focus was on leadership ideals. What does it mean to be an ideal leader in different countries? Uh, so in 2004, uh, the, we changed the, the question and decided, let's look at the actual behavior of leaders. Who are the best leaders to study? Well, CEOs. Uh, because they deal with the most complex uh, types of decisions as leaders. So we were able to put together a team of researchers in 24 countries. In each country, they collected data from 50 companies. And what that meant was the, the CEOs of these companies completed their questionnaire and the VPs reporting to them completed their questionnaires. And we specifically asked about leadership behaviors. And, and that produced the 2014 book on CEOs. Now in, 26, in December of 2016, um, my late friend, Ali Dasmalchian, uh, Professor uh, Peter Dorfman and myself were attending a conference in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. And, and we, we would of course spend a lot of time, we're very good friends, um, and we'd spend time dinner, having dinners together, coffees together, and we started again asking new questions. The first question was, you know, Hofstede believes that cultures are stable and don't change, but there's a lot of other researchers who talk about, yeah, cultures do change. Well, what is really happening? Do cultures change? To what extent? What explains it? So that was our first question. Let's go and collect empirical data comparing cultures of the late uh, of the 2019, 2018 versus mid 90s um, and see uh, empirically provide evidence on whether or not cultures change, what dimensions and what explains that at what pace. The second question we asked was, you know, there hasn't been a lot of work in IB on trust. Uh, there is some work, um, as Sri Zahir and uh, others 
have done work uh, at Zaheer on trust in at the corporate level, but at the individual level, interpersonal trust. There's not a whole lot of work, uh, theoretical or empirical, uh, in IB. So we said, let's design a way of understanding what are the antecedents of interpersonal trust in different countries? And in what way does national culture impact that? So those two questions started the current phase of the GLOBE project, which we call GLOBE 2020. And again, at the time, our ambition was, let's collect data from 60 some countries. And um, we started inviting people. Um, at this point, Ilgaz, we have a network of 400, over 470 researchers who have been helping us to collect data from over 100,000 managers in 142 countries. All done, finished. Um, and we're now doing the analyses. So I'm so excited. Um, I, I'm just like a kid who's told, you're going to a candy shop very soon. Um, <laughs> I don't know the results yet, but I'm, I'm in the car getting ready to go to the candy shop. And Mike, I, we, I, I'm so uh, fortunate to work with a team of researchers at the University of Victoria, Simon Fraser University, University of Delaware, uh, who are incredibly smart, talented, and dedicated to this project that started in late 2016. Uh, and we now have the database that's been cleaned, uh, 60 different languages for the instrument. Um, it, it's just an incredible project. And I, I, I am so excited to see the information that this project is going to produce for researchers, for PhD students, for managers, and all kinds of uh, people who can take advantage of it. Thank you. Now, I've also recovered uh, probably uh, what's going to be in the um, next five to 10 years agenda for IB research. But I would like to ask about uh, the evolution that you've seen over the past 30 years, evolution in IB from what it was to what is evolving into. Uh, what can you say about the, um, the evolution? What have we learned along the way? Uh, have we lost something? Uh, what's your opinion? Uh, I, I'm a big fan of uh, uh, IB and uh, where we are now compared to 30 years ago, for example, uh, there's some major uh, growth and development in this field that are very impressive. The theoretical development, um, my colleagues, our colleagues, uh, other professors in the field have produced really um, um, impressive knowledge, both conceptual and empirical. Uh, heavily at the firm level um, and to, to a lesser extent uh, at the industry level. So the field has grown, has matured, has asked a lot of interesting questions, uh, has found um, a lot of answers that have produced new questions, which is exactly the way science evolves. Um, if I may add a, a commentary on that, uh, I think going forward, um, we need to continue the evolution of understanding how firms operate in international business. Um, 
But at the same time, we also need to pay closer attention to individual level phenomena uh, in international business. Uh, I hope that uh, the field uh, will start paying closer attention, will start asking some really interesting questions about how do managers behave? Why do they behave? What is the relationship between the behavior of these managers in different parts of the world and their childhood experiences in different parts of the world? So there's a lot of fascinating micro level, individual level phenomena that I hope will, uh, will receive greater attention uh, in, um, in the field. The reason I got interested, you know, uh, I, I'm a bit of a schizophrenic um, scholar in the sense that I work at the macro level, obviously, societal cultures. But starting in 2004, when I joined Thunderbird, the research question I asked was, okay, now that we understand there are some major differences, similarities too, but major differences across cultures, why is it that some managers are successful in global roles and why, and some are not? So I, the other side of my schizophrenic work is at the individual level, uh, which is the Global Mindset Project at Thunderbird, my institute. So our focus uh, in the institute is trying to understand the individual qualities, attributes, that would enable a manager to succeed when they move from a domestic role to a global role. Uh, so, and this is really important because we talk about corporations in international business, but corporations are filled with people, human beings, decision makers. And it would help us better understand how firm level phenomena evolve if we pay closer attention to how individuals see the world, interpret the world and react to the world. So uh, uh, my hope uh, is to see greater interest and focus on that side in the field. Over the past five to 10 years, uh, there's an increased um, emphasis on nationalism and populist uh, ideologies and regimes. Uh, do these things uh, appear in your data uh, or do they impact the behavior of the managers you talk to? You know, uh, uh, I'm so glad you asked that question, guys. Uh, my colleague, uh, David Waldman at um, ASU and myself wrote an article in Harvard Business Review and the title of the article is The False Dichotomy of Nationalism and Globalism. Um, and in the article, we point out that uh, it's so easy uh, to focus on one extreme at the expense of other. But we actually use complexity theory to explain that the way that the world is evolving, that is a false dichotomy to be successful for all of us as, as citizens and as decision makers in organizations, we need to take a complexity approach and we need to see these two going hand in hand. They don't need to be juxtaposed as extreme opposites. They can actually feed into each other. And in the article, we provide a bunch of examples of how decision makers 
can be both nationalistic and at the same time uh, uh, globalist. By the way, if I may add one uh, comment to this, I'm reading a bunch of articles and books about on the demise of globalization, deglobalization. Uh, there's a book that the author talks about death of globalization. All of that sounds fantastic, except it's not borne out by evidence. If you look at the evidence of uh, global interaction in 2019, which is the latest data we have, it keeps growing. International trade, international relations keep growing. Um, so the, all this talk about everybody becoming nationalistic and building walls around their borders, it sounds fascinating, good sign, soundbite, but in fact, it's not borne out by any evidence. So globalization is here with us because there's a logic to it. Yes, it, you know, as human beings, nothing we do is perfect. Everything we do has good things and has bad things. And globalization, of course, has a lot of good things, but it also has negative consequences. So our challenge is to deal with the negative consequences, but it doesn't mean to stop globalization. It just means to better understand the dynamics and the consequences, both at the individual level, the society level, uh, and at the firm level, at the government level. Uh, so those are the new challenges we're going to be facing. But globalization ain't stopping. That's a fact. About uh, advice to young scholars and junior faculty, what are some of the things that you see um, the young academics uh, make Or you know, it, let me ask you this way: What should they not do, and what they, what should they do for a successful career? You know, <clears throat> if I were a young academic today, uh, I would have a hard time, and and I'll explain why. Um, as a young academic, publishing is the paramount criterion for success in, in our field. Um, And people who have a very successful track record of publishing always tell me there is a path, there is a method to um, getting articles published. Um, so as a young academic, it's obviously important for the scholar to go get on that path, learn the tricks and the ropes of getting published. Unfortunately, if you take that approach as a young scholar, you miss out on two things. One is this notion of impact. I have a much broader definition of impact for a scholar than the number of uh, citations uh, of my work. And I have pretty good number of citations. Uh, so it's not because I have low citations, but the point is there are other stakeholders in the society that need to and <clears throat> should benefit uh, in a direct way from the work that all of us do. And as a young scholar, <clears throat> unfortunately, people are moved away from that because it may detract from Uh, the path of 
uh, continuous publishing. To me, it's unfortunate, uh, but it's the reality of our field. But my advice to a young scholar is do not lose sight of a broader definition of impact um, because there are other important uh, parts of the society that need to benefit. The other uh, advice I have for uh, a young scholar, which would make me uncomfortable as a young scholar, because it's hard to do. What I'm suggesting is hard to do for a young scholar. The other thing is, it's easy to get on a particular theoretical stream and uh, build on it and use it to write papers. And it works. It's, there is a lot of evidence that it's a successful path. But one of the things that I personally have found fascinating is deviating from that, getting into areas that at surface could be quite different from my theoretical background. Uh, being open-minded, being curious about how other disciplines view things, to me, is a fascinating scholarly activity. It doesn't necessarily produce quick publications, but it really, uh, in my own experience, it has had huge impact on me getting into and reading stuff, some of which I do not understand, I must admit, because it's completely out of my field. Um, but it's just incredibly beneficial to the development of the mind of the scholar. So I, I'm afraid I don't have easy su suggestions to young scholars. That was very helpful, thank you. Um, well, uh, what is a question that I should have asked you about evidence? Um, The one thing that comes to my mind is the word impact. Uh, you know, in IB, uh, I don't see us spending a lot of time challenging ourselves, asking ourselves, how do we define the impact of the past 30 years of incredible theoretical and empirical work that's been accomplished by us collectively by all the professors involved. How do we assess the impact of that on the broader society, institutions of the society, decision makers of the society? I think this is a question that at some point, uh, AIB uh, would benefit from engaging in, having conversations about it. This was very interesting. Uh, I learned a lot. I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Thank you, Mansur. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity, guys. Have a great day.